0: Welcome to the NCO Journal Podcast, where we explore NCO professional development. This is a podcast series where we discuss published articles with authors and provide a forum for the open exchange of ideas, information, and solutions. I'm your host, Chago Zapata, Managing Editor of the NCO Journal at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. Today we discuss the article, Surviving the March, Lessons Learned from the 101st Airborne Division with Lieutenant Colonel David DeGroot from the Army Heat Center at Fort Benning, Georgia. With us is Sergeant First Class Osvaldo Equite, NCYSE of the NCO Journal, and Senior Editor Tony Mena. Thank you all for being here. Before we kick things off, though, could you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Yeah, so I'm a, so by training, I'm a physiologist. So uh, in, in Army terms, I'm a, a 71 Bravo. That's physiology and biochemistry. So we're a lab science officers. Um, but my expertise and background is in heat stress physiology and how Operating in heat stress can affect health and performance, uh, and that's kind of what I've been doing over the course of my career for the Army—is all things heat and also, uh, to a lesser extent, uh, cold stress-related. Do have some background there as well, um, but yeah, and actually uh, a pleasure to be talking with the NCO Journal because I'm prior enlisted. I once upon a time I was an NCO. Hey, um, all right, all right, Mustang. Yeah, yeah. So it's a, a pleasure to be talking with this audience well thanks
0: thanks again for being here and for taking the time to to talk a little bit deeper to go the dive a sorry to dive a little bit deeper into your article I think it's important and we did have some uh, some comments and stuff from the audience that I think that'll uh, come into play with our in our discussion here um, let's let's go ahead and get things kick things off why is it that well, I know that also that uh, two of your your co-authors weren't able to to come could you tell us a little bit about them and maybe why they're not here
1: I certainly can. So, uh, and I think it's uh, important for the audience to recognize the different perspectives. So, I'm coming to you as the director of the Army Heat Center. So, I sit down here at Fort Benning, Georgia. My, uh, and so I was the the third author on the article. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Amy Thompson is a physician. She recently just completed completed a tour as the division surgeon for 101st Airborne Division. And then um, Major Martinez is another healthcare provider who works within the division surgeon cell, and he actually headed up the, uh, the initial investigation or commander's inquiry, I suppose it was, to the mass casualty incident that occurred in June of last year at Fort Campbell that really got our interest in this. Um, both of them are in the midst of, you know, of course it's PCS season. They're, they're in the midst of PCS moves. So I imagine that's why they're unavailable. What was the, uh, the, the, the reason for writing this article? We collectively, I'm talking about officers in the medical command, AMED officers. We don't always do such a good job of reaching what's the target audience. Who do we really need to know and understand this information? It's not necessarily your, well, yes, we do want your, you know, your brigade surgeons, your battalion surgeons and their associated staff to know this stuff. But the day-to-day, boots on the ground, who's running these events? It's the NCOs. They need to know this information as well. Uh, and that's why when uh, credit goes to Lieutenant Colonel Thompson, she was the one who had the idea. She contacted me, I think it was last December, of, hey, Colonel DeGroote, we should write this stuff up. We we need to send this to a a professional journal, and that's what kicked off our discussion because that's who we need to know this information. It's not so much the the healthcare providers. Yes, there are aspects of this they absolutely need to know, and they need to be part of the pre planning for part of these events you know, utilizing, you know, for for whether it's a battalion, brigade, division, whatever level, their the medical advisors they have. We need the NCOs who are actually running and supervising the events to know this information.
0: Uh, your, your article, it, you share a lot of good information, uh, things that are important for NCOs to know. But what kind of resistance did you did you face in the past when you suggested, you know, units implement these different kinds of uh, heat injury prevention practices? I mean, did you did you ever run across some uh, instances of, of units? kind of digging in their heels and, and not wanting to do some of these things?
1: I wouldn't say so much digging in your heels, but there have been uh, one recent instance comes to mind. And um, In the interest of anonymity, I won't call out the specific unit or commander, of course, but just as an example, and we talk about this in the article, that on certain days uh, under harsher environmental conditions, like we understand like the the uh, the events that we describe in our article of uh, heat casualties during EIB testing, the brigade that conducted their testing, they're constrained by the annual training calendar, where they've got their you know the annual training cycle and training center rotations and block leave and all that stuff, right? So sometimes it's just the Unfortunate reality that the window of time where they have available to conduct EIB testing falls in the summer months. So we don't want to be, we don't want to harshly criticize them for that because we understand there could be circumstances there. But when you do make that decision, there's something that needs to be kept in mind. And this is where I've talked with some senior leaders at some various schools here at Fort Benning. And so I I carry over some of my experience out and just outside my army life. Um, I'm a weightlifting coach. Uh, the sport of Olympic weightlifting. Uh, I do some coaching there, uh, and and one of the lessons I've learned, and I've heard from other coaches, is the answer to the question, "What is the most important training day?" And the answer is always tomorrow. the The lesson there is, if what you do today impairs your abilities, your ability to train tomorrow, today's training wasn't good. And the same goes for army training, whether you are. We'll we'll extend this up to Fort Campbell. If you're at aerosol school and you get injured on day three, well, your training's over. That was a bad training day. And sometimes the mindset needs to be check the box. That isn't easily accepted. And that's where we get some resistance from leaders. But sometimes what you need to do is treat the event like, say, whether, you know, we'll stick with the foot marching example of a a 12-mile ruck march. Your single goal should be to meet the standard. Finish it in under three hours. If it's a, a hot and humid day, if you've been a little bit under the weather with some illness, whatever the case may be, that's not the day to go out there and try and set a personal best in the time to try and impress others or just to prove yourself, you prove yourself by meeting the standard. And sometimes that message is one that isn't readily accepted by some commanders because they wanna see what people are quote made of and what they can do. But the reality is to earn a given badge or tab, or even just to complete initial entry training like we have here at Fort Benning, sometimes what just needs to happen if the weather conditions are poor is meet the standard. So that's where I've gotten some resistance. Uh, occasionally, you know, that, that'll get the occasional commander will give me an eye roll. I'm, oh, really? Is that your guidance? But, you know, sometimes there's not much else left you can do is motivation is a big risk factor. And sometimes we have to learn to keep our motivation in check a little bit.
0: Just uh, going back to to your article, we, I don't know if you t- took a look at it after we published it, but we did make a a change, a significant change. Is we put one of the vignettes that you guys listed. I think were, there were three of them, and we put one of them and we we brought it up to the top to kind of showcase, you know what what happened with like the most the most serious one, the the one that uh, Br- brigade expert infantry badge. So anyway, Correct. we we moved it up because we thought it was a if we we wanted to put. Get in a put an attention getter up there at the top, you know, to kind of give, uh, to bring to life everything that you're talking about before you even bring it in or before you even talk about it. Um, so we we do that on occasion when we, whenever we have an article, and especially with an audience like ours where where they don't have a lot of time, and you, we want to grab their attention so that you know we can get them to to kind of go down and, and read the rest of sure. the article. Uh, but the the thing is that that brought that to life to me is that the number of casualties. Of key casualties that uh, that were suffered by that unit, and that was that's pretty significant. I, I think you called it a a, a uh, mass casualty event. Would that would I be correct in that in that specific instance, that vignette that yes. you just discussed?
1: Yeah, I think you're absolutely. You know, we don't have a you know a, what's a textbook definition of mass casualty, but any time when you have a number of casualties that overwhelms the locally available medical assets and you've got to call in outside help, you've got a mass casualty situation. And that's
0: what that was. Well, what what brought it, brought it home to me more, most more than anything, cause I served, I served in the military myself for 20 years and I never, I don't remember every getting a class on, on, uh, on the different things to look for. Maybe, maybe a few things here and there, but it was more casually mentioned rather than specifically emphasized. Uh, and it's one of the things that I think that, that NCOs need to be aware of this so that they can be informed and pass that information on to their soldiers. The the thing that got me was where they were uh, pouring ice water over their heads instead of dipping their arms into it. That that was such a significant thing that had the had the NCOs or had the information be, been passed on to the uh, the individuals, they would have they would have been more aware. Maybe not been dumping water and ice over their heads, and it would have been more effective. And that that was just that's what struck home to me more than anything.
1: Yeah, and you know, on that point, that's part of what, you know, zooming out a little bit from this particular incident, what what we do with the program I run with the Army Heat Center is a big piece of that is prevention through training and education. Right now, of course, because I'm located at Fort Benning and it's primarily the initial entry training population with the uh, three basic training brigades that we have here in addition to the um, uh, infant, infantry and armor basic officer leadership courses, is we train the drill sergeants on, you know, as part of their onboarding process. You know, there's a, a what they call it the a drill sergeant check ride. It's basically a fort bending run program to ensure that the uh, drill sergeants, when they hit the trail here, so to speak, they are fully aware of local resources policies procedures but also local challenges and with and with that in mind that's where we have an opportunity to provide them with a class on the prevention but then also the recognition and appropriate response to a suspected heat casualty Uh, because we need them to know that um we're also working uh sometime later this fall, I hope to be getting up to Fort Jackson and meeting with the commandant of the Drill Sergeant Academy. That really, we'd like to see this uh, added to the curriculum there so that not just Fort Benning's drill sergeants, uh, but drill sergeants across the Army receive this information. So it's not just a, a problem unique to Fort Benning, um, as, as this incident at Fort Campbell uh, shows.
0: I'm kind of jumping the gun here with one of the we had some comments from our Facebook audience they they uh, they talked about training at NTC JRC the Mojave desert Iraq and Afghanistan uh, so why why do they need so what his it wasn't a question it was more of a statement well why do we need to know this stuff is are you just trying to check a box or something with this you know it just seemed like they, the the individuals didn't seem to really get it as to what the, what the significance of this article was, and that was when training in a humid environment, whereas the, the places that he, he mentioned or him and another uh, uh, person mentioned were all uh, warm – or not, not warm, but like desert environments –
1: so can yeah, you tell us a hot, dry.
0: exactly? Can you tell us a little bit about the difference and what like training in one environment as compared to a, humid, a dry environment, right, as compared to a a, 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 a uh, sorry a humid environment? Can you tell us about yeah. the, the different kinds of training when it comes to that?
1: There's a little bit you know with respect to that particular um, person's comment on Facebook, and now I gotta I want to go back and look and find <laughs> you guys on Facebook to go yeah, look sure. at the comments myself. But you know, there's, a, there's a, a little bit of an apples to oranges comparison here for two reasons, actually. It's not just the environment. I'll return to that in a moment. But what we do, well, what we know is that across the entire army, about 70 to 80% of all heat casualties actually occur in TRADOC, not in force comm units. It comes in all the all of our training formations. So that's where we focus a lot of our our efforts. Um, Because what are we doing in these across trade-off units? It's either initial entry training and with turning civilians into soldiers, or it's various schoolhouses that are needed for either for professional advancement, whether it's, uh, you know, the, the various NCOES schools or to earn a badge or tab, which can be very much career enhancing. So there's always going to be some greater levels of motivation of people pushing themselves a little bit harder. That's kind of inherent to trade off that you may not necessarily have in a uh, force com unit. So you have that difference just between the different uh, unit types. But then to get with to come back to your question with the weather conditions, the challenge for us when it's hot out, the really the primary way. Depending on how hot it is, it may be the only way that we cool off is through the evaporation of sweat. In a very dry climate, like to the, with the, the reader's comment about NTC or in Iraq, where it's very dry, sweat can freely evaporate just because of the very low humidity. So, we do a physiologically, our bodies do a better job of staying cooler in a hot, dry environment. You come to a place like, well, certainly here at Fort Benning, but also even up at Fort Campbell or anywhere else. uh, JRTC at Fort Polkwood is another good example where the humidity is that much higher. uh, And then that's a a barrier, an impediment to the free evaporation of sweat. And if we can't evaporate the sweat, we can't cool off. So that imposes, uh, you know, well, doesn't impose an additional strain. Just our body temperature will then continue to rise, as long as activity continues in those hot and humid environments.
2: Yeah, and I believe I believe the goal here is to prevent heat injuries, right? It is to pre- prevent overwhelming resources and things like that for the medical personnel that are are conducting these training events. But this is just you know the way I took this article. um, was that you're trying to provide NCOs who are on the ground conducting the training, additional information, additional tools that they can use to ensure that they prevent heat casualties. And to the, you know, to the other uh, poster's comment is, you know, training doesn't necessarily have to happen on that 12-mile road march, right? Like, training happens way before then. It happens on Thursday ruck marches um, when you're doing – a mile and a half, two miles out, two miles back, um, when you're doing ruck march, uh, ruck runs, um, when you're building up for those bigger events. So I think the information that you provide here is going to be helpful for those NCOs that are conducting training, you know, throughout the year in every kinds of environments in different areas.
1: Yeah, no, thank thank you for that comment, Sergeant. And you know, I I agree with you prevention. You know, is the most important thing. You know, the the various efforts I lead here at the Army Heat Center, the foundation of all of that is prevention. And like you said, you make a great point. It's not just during that 12 mile ruck when you're trying to pass that final event to earn, I don't care, it's EIB, EFMB, aerosol, whatever reason you're doing that timed event to meet the standard. It's all of the preparation that comes to that as well. It's all of those training events, setting you up, setting yourself up for success. And prevention extends across all of those events. It's every day. Uh, you know, here at Fort Benning, you know, the, number, the heat casualties we see, sure, a, a significant number of them occurred during those timed events. Uh, but they also occurred during just routine training, routine foot marches and run events. So it, it certainly should be throughout all of those that we need to be focusing on the prevention of casualties in the first place. So that when the time comes for that, um, capstone event for whatever purpose, they are adequately prepared.
3: I really enjoyed your article and I guess to touch on the Iraq and the sweating and everything too. Um, cause I was in Iraq in 05, 06, um, I was a recon corpsman and I feel like, uh, I didn't even know about heat casualty stuff until I went through the 18 Delta course, uh, when I was becoming a recon corpsman and then I was a lot more empowered so your article touches on the training, but for combat, like it's, I feel like it's the same. You're still looking for symptoms an empowered NCO, uh, looking out for their troops. And you know, Iraq maybe is a drier heat, but you're wearing uh, full length uniforms and flight suits back then. You got all that gear on. You can't just take it off. You're patrolling for miles and miles and miles. And like, I feel like heat is sort of like the 12th man. It's like, uh, something that you can't always see on paper, but it's always there. Uh, so yeah, I just really enjoyed your article. I thought it was very empowering. Um, I thought the signs and symptoms to look for for NCOs, uh, not even NCOs, all the way down to the private, you know, everyone involved in the ruck. Like if you have a heat casualty, oh man, that's, that takes away medical personnel. If you're on a mission, that's going to, totally destroy your timelines and everything else i mean because that's a casualty it may not be a gunshot wound but it's a legit casualty um yeah, yeah so your no, article I, definitely hit I, home
1: yeah I, I appreciate your comments and, and and thanks for that um i just want to you know to put a kind of an exclamation point on some of that stuff in terms of they are a casualty especially with heat stroke and that you know of course that is the most severe of the category of heat illnesses is heat stroke and make no mistake, it can be fatal. And that's why the recognition and response is so critical. That and we make this point in the paper, you know, the most important thing for a suspected heat stroke casualty is get them pulled off. And making sure people know what's the right, what's a good method. What are good methods? There's no one best. Well, there may be one best, but there's a number of acceptable methods to get someone who is. Yeah, if you suspect heat stroke to get them cooled off is that can truly be a life-saving intervention. So they absolutely are a casualty who take medical resource, you know, can be a drain on medical resources. And as you point out, can be just as impactful on on the ability to conduct a mission as a gunshot or IED casualty still going to be a drain on medical resources and impact unit readiness.
3: The other thing I liked about your article is that, um, educated everyone so from personal experience like i have been a heat casualty before and i was the medical personnel like so the first time was in recon training and it was very hot and yeah cramped up i think i passed out at one point woke up at the uh collection point well the, the second time i think i was on a range we were getting ready for iraq Uh, and this was Okinawa and the heat, the humidity is just like a hot blanket. You can never get rid of. Anyway, I was the one that, (laughs) I was the one that was the heat casualty again on that time. And I was the only medical personnel, but all my Marines were trained, um, which is the importance of like, not just medical personnel, knowing the signs and symptoms and, uh, treatment procedures for heat casualties. Um, which is again, why I loved your article. I think it speaks to the whole force. To
1: that point, also of, with it's not just the the NCOs. One of the things I talked to the drill sergeants here at Fort Benning about is rely on all the other soldiers too. There are numerous instances we've had here where the first recognition that someone was struggling and getting in trouble was their battle buddy, who then spoke up, "Hey, drill sergeant, Private Snuffy over here is looking pretty rough." Gets the you know, drill sergeants just like uh you know your non-drill sergeant ncos you can't be everywhere at once you can't have eyes on everybody and monitoring everything it's a team approach and it's it comes back to that old old standby phrase of know your soldiers but also know your battle buddies and recognizing when someone might be in trouble and there's no harm in hey let's get a medic over here you know if we're talking a force comm unit and you've got all the medical assets that we don't necessarily have in there's no harm in hey doc, can you come check on Private Snuffy? And maybe it's nothing, and maybe it's something, and maybe you just intervened and and made a very important intervention to, in taking care of a fellow soldier.
0: I, I wanted to to talk a little bit about Tony uh, and his his uh, situation there. He was a, uh, a heat casualty, but uh, from yeah. your ex- from your experience, uh, or you, what what kind of if somebody is a heat casualty, how does that affect the rest of their lives? And how to, because I, I heard over the course of the years that your body temperature does isn't as well controlled or your body doesn't control your temperature as well. Once you've been a, a heat casualty. Well, can you get, get go a little bit into that so the audience knows what can happen if somebody does suffer
1: that kind yeah, of. Yeah, no, I, I'd be happy to. And that's a really great question. I'm glad you asked it because our knowledge of, the consequences and really we're talking about heat stroke here um let, let's remember heat exhaustion is mild it's transient it, it's really a cardiovascular insufficiency by that what i mean when we're exercising in the heat go outside on a day like today it's nice and hot out and even just to go for like a three mile run during that event we've got a demand for a lot of blood flow to our, our working muscles and we've also got a lot of demand to blood flow to our skin. Because our skin is our body's radiator. That's how we transfer heat away from the core and help stay cool. In heat exhaustion, simply put, there's not enough blood flow available to both of your skin and muscle and you can't continue. But as soon as you stop and cool off, it's over. There's no damage, there's no medical consequences to a heat exhaustion event. So when I talk about long-term possibility of long-term consequences, we're really talking about heat stroke. And that has that central nervous system dysfunction. There's often unconsciousness. They may have seizures, Um, can be quite serious. That's what can be fatal if untreated. Our knowledge of the long-term consequences of heat stroke is, is evolving. You know, we've all heard it before of, oh yeah, if you had a prior heat illness, you're at risk in the future. And I don't believe that that's necessarily true. And here's why: we've gotten so much better at treating our heat casualties. I think it is true that if you've got, you know, what uh, you know, take the circumstance of a heat wave, and you've got an elderly individual in an apartment with, and they lose their air conditioning because of. Uh, a blackout because of power demands, and it overheats, and they have what we call classic heat stroke, not exertional heat stroke, and they're very hot for a long period of time. Is their body damaged by that event? Probably yes. In an exertional heat stroke, if they're not promptly cooled off and they're very hot for a prolonged period of time, may there be damage? Possibly yes. But we've gotten so good at recognizing and responding to a suspected heat casualty and getting them cooled off quickly that they're not hot enough long enough to cause long-term damage. And so for an individual who's had a heat stroke, they may never have any long-term effects from it. It depends on how well they were taken care of at the time of collapse is how my thought process has kind of evolved on that as we've learned more about the treatment. I, I don't have, you know, I'm, I'm a scientist by training. I don't have good scientific data that backs that up. But just from my anecdotal experience of the heat casualties we've seen here at Fort Benning, that's what we're seeing. I, I had the opportunity to meet a lieutenant uh about a year ago, a year before that. So a little over two years ago now, he himself was a heat stroke during eyebolic And he was treated promptly and appropriately. And when I saw him a year later, he introduced himself to me and reminded me of who he was. And he talked about in the year since his heat stroke, he recovered from it. He recycled into ebolic and graduated. He went to ranger school in the winter months, earned his ranger tab, and he was out here at Fort Benning as a platoon leader, doing just fine. There's no reason to think that he's going to have any long-term consequences from his heat stroke event. I can't necessarily say that about someone who wasn't cooled off promptly and appropriately, and that's really the, where the difference comes. Um, so for for Tony, for your incident, you know, I, I without knowing details and you know how hot you were and whether there was central nervous system dysfunction, it's really difficult to say. Is that going to have some long term effects for you, or was it a singular event that you've recovered from and you you get on with life?
3: Um, I think I've recovered. I'm outside of yeah. the heat a lot now, but it, it kind of took a while. So oddly there was the first incident then there was the second incident. There wasn't much in Iraq, but I, I mean, we were very careful with everybody. Um, and then, but for years after that, I would cramp up very easily. so I don't know if that's a lingering effect. And it wasn't until mm, this last year, maybe where I feel like I'm totally fine now. And but there was a diet change and everything, so you know there's so many factors. But yeah, I think I'm recovered now, and really the the hyper hyper cramping <laughs> was like the only lingering effect for a couple years.
1: Yeah, and that might have been, and you know, it's probably pretty challenging to tell this far, uh, looking looking in the mirror that far back. Yeah, if you had had some rhabdomyolysis at the same time you know, some skeletal muscle damage there Mm -hmm. during the not uncommon. I'd say close to half of our, uh, well, maybe not quite half, um, maybe a third of our heat casualties also have rhabdo. And so there may be some level of some muscle dysfunction and that could have been where the, the cramping comes from. That's a little speculative on my part. Um, so it's not necessarily the heat. It's the other things that happen to you at the same time, possibly. Yeah. Um, so, and like you said, there's other things that, you know, other changes in your life. You talk about diet, stuff and whatnot. So, you know, we want to be careful. Um, you know, I don't want to armchair things too much from <laughs> a distance here.
2: That goes back to uh, part of your article that I found interesting as well was the individual responsibility and different risk factors to that. Um, can you talk a little bit more about some of that soldier individual responsibility a soldier has? And I'll give you one example. Um, you know, um, if a soldier doesn't eat um, before going out on a patrol, if they, if they are not eating the entire MRE and things like that, that's when, um, those calories get used up, uh, quicker, but, that, uh, w- can you talk a little bit more about what you meant in individual responsibility and risk factors?
1: Yeah, so there's a, a, a couple areas that, 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 that relates to, and I, I mentioned to that earlier, just about that motivation, uh, you know, during, a, you know, say a timed foot march event where, having an understanding that yeah today it's you know the sun's not even up yet and it's heat category two i shouldn't be going out there trying to set a personal record pace i should be setting out there to meet the standard absolutely but just keeping my own motivation in check but there's there's more to it than just that there's that individual responsibility to maintain your fitness to Uh, appropriate, you know, you already, you just mentioned it in terms of appropriate fueling and hydration strategies. The other thing that we see here, and this is just part of our, it's almost part of our culture, the whole idea of suck it up and drive on. Well, there comes a time where that's no longer the right thing to do. And what you need to do is seek medical aid. And I'll give you an example. Now, this is a fairly serious one from a couple of years ago, but I think it's indicative of it. We had a private first class in basic training and he got blisters on his heels. Now, I learned all of this in retrospect when I interviewed him in the hospital. He had blisters on both feet, on, on the he- on the heels of both feet. He's barely a month into basic training, you know, still getting used to wearing boots and walking everywhere. And then the blisters got worse and then they got a little bit worse. He still didn't go over the sick call or even just to see uh, any other providers that might be available. Because what does a basic trainee do? He wants to stay in training. No one wants to risk, no offense to drill sergeants, but no one wants to stay with them any longer than they have to. You want to get at complete training and get onto your unit. That's why you join the army. So he doesn't say anything. Then he gets infected. He doesn't say anything. It turns into cellulitis. Doesn't say anything. Then it's time for a longer foot march. Here's the thing, that that cellulitis is already an immune challenge. He's having an immune response to an infection, which itself can cause a fever. And an existing fever can lower your threshold, increase your risk of becoming a heat casualty. And sure enough, he had a heat stroke. Now, how might that story have been different if a week earlier... He went and just the sick call for the simple, hey, I got these blisters that are really bothering me and gotten some gotten some attention to take care of those before they became infected. How might his story have differed? I can't guarantee you he would not have become a heat stroke, but there's a pretty good chance that that contributed considerably to that circumstance. So you need to take care of yourself too. That's where that individual responsibility comes. Yeah, I need to take care of myself. And sometimes taking yourself, take care, taking care of yourself means I need to get some medical aid, even if it's just going to sick call and just taking care of that routine stuff. So it's not just in the moment. It's not just the eating and hydration and and pacing yourself, staying within your own limits that all matter, but also with medical risk factors um i could i could tell you several other anecdotes of instances like that but i think that's a good one um, as an example of where the individual you know we we, we want to be careful not to blame the victim in this case but there is some element of individual responsibility that contributed to the ultimate outcome here now we're happy to say that this individual recovered fine was re- reinsert uh, uh insert Completed basic training, and last I knew, is he's happily serving somewhere. Um, but all of that didn't have to happen.
0: I, um, as I was reading your article, I was preparing actually for for today. I I, I came up with a uh, scenario, and I put it as a, one of the list of things that we that I sent to you about uh, NCO obs- an NCO observes a soldier showing uh, some sort of heat illness symptoms. Mm-hmm. Uh, what if the what is the first thing he should he should do, and what at what point does he go back to the rest of his team? I know that was part of it, but there, I, there was something at the end. The, the next question that I had was: what if you have then this this is this goes back to that first uh, vignette that you talk about in your article? What if you have a, a lot of individuals as they did, and you know how do you prioritize? You know the the different people. I mean, you, you might be say you have. Uh, Ten people and and five of them are are not looking good. How do you prioritize those as an NCO?
1: Yeah, and and that's where you rely on your medical personnel. The whole triage process is what what is triaging. It's really nothing more than an assessment of severity and prioritization of who most who is in most dire need of our medical attention. So that's where, you know, when you get larger numbers, that's where you really need your medical personnel to step up, um, get them involved. And that's their role to to triage the the group as you will. Um, but I think that to return to your point about recognizing, I do want to make the point about, to reinforce for the listeners, what are those common signs and symptoms? what are we looking out for? And what should that response look like for that NCO who's overseeing the event, who's moving up and down the line in a vehicle or working alongside people? More, most often what we see, especially with heat stroke, but also with heat exhaustion, the medical term is ataxia. It's loss of muscle coordination. When I put it into layman's terms, when I teach classes, I talk about, uh, they're walking like a baby deer. We all get that mental picture of kind of stumbling around a little bit. They're trying to walk a straight line, but they can't. Right there, you observe that. That's a red flag. And the first thing that needs to happen is go talk to them. Hey trooper, how you doing? How you feeling? Oh, well, ask those open-ended questions. If they struggle to give you answers, if they're not doing well we might proceed to a quick mental status check. And that's simple questions. Hey, remind me, what's your hometown? What's your mom's name? What was the mascot at your high school? And when I teach using those questions, what I tell them is, it doesn't matter that you don't know what the right answer is. What you're listening for is how quickly how quickly and confidently they can respond to that question. Because that tells you a lot about their mentation, their level of mental ability, because if they can't answer those simple questions, like I and all three of you right now, if I said, what's your hometown? The answer is popping to mind right away. You can answer that, I'm sure. But if someone struggles to give that, that's a red flag and that's a, hey, medic, get someone over there to do a proper evaluation. Stop the person and do a proper evaluation because you probably have a heat casualty on your hands. Unless, until proven otherwise, if you've got that sort of altered mental status during a physical event, it's a possible heat stroke until proven otherwise. And right there, that's the intervention that can uh, really save them from serious further injury.
3: Um, So you had three authors on this. Um, I guess, how did this article form itself because we received a very polished copy um, so i just want to know how it got to that stage
1: yeah well well thank you for that you I mean, know take, take pride in uh, sending something up that's uh in, in really good shape when you first see it there uh so i think i mentioned this earlier in our conversation that uh lieutenant colonel thompson uh she gets full credit for the idea for the paper and she and i just chatted and strategized um okay how do we want to uh, approach this paper, and you know how are we going to divvy up? Who's going to write what portions? And we took a team approach, where um, you know because they were the individuals, especially um, Major Martinez, our our third author, um, where he was actually part of the the commander's inquiry group that looked into that first mass casualty event that happened in June of last year. So he was really able to bring in those details because he was privy to that whole information gathering process. Whereas I'm the the heat stress physiologist, I can write the background stuff. So we took a team approach, but then Colonel Thompson and I basically took took turns passed it back and forth a couple of times to to polish it up. You know, she took my input, she took Major Martinez's input, put it all into one coherent article and then sends it to me and I made some revisions and sent it back to her and okay, are we happy with it? Yeah. And we go ahead and send it up. So it was definitely a collaborative process that we each had an opportunity to contribute to our portions, but then one individual kind of has the lead to make sure it reads and flows kind of seamlessly.
3: Have you always been a writer or is it something you've had to learn how to do? And I get answers oh, all boy. over the board, which I love.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm still learning how to be a writer. I feel it's like <laughs> you're you know, you you're never done. I, I learned a very valuable lesson when I was enlisted. I, I worked at one of the Army's um, Medical Research and Materiel Command laboratories. And I had an opportunity. Uh, I got to know one of the senior scientists there. And he passed on the lesson he learned when he was a doctoral student. I'm not kidding you, decades ago, he's now... He's been retired for 20 years, so this tells you how long ago this was when he was a student. And he told a story where his, his doctoral advisor as an undergraduate himself was a journalism major. And an important lesson as a, both as a writer and as an editor, or as a collaborator with others. There's a difference between editing an article and just putting it in your own style. And there's a difference between that and making it better. You have a writing style. I have a writing style. Colonel Thompson, who, I, who was our lead author on this, has a writing style. Doesn't mean that one is necessarily better than the other in terms of clearly concisely communicating what you want the reader to know. And I'm always, I mean, I, I've got a, a a fair number of publications. I, uh, this is what I do for a living. I, I write and publish. As a scientist, that's our bread and butter. Um, our, our work is meaningless if we're not disseminating it to whether it's through something like the NCO journal or a scientific journal. Um, always working to be better at a writer, at, at writing and as a writer. Um, and I keep that lesson in mind that that colleague had, had shared with me that just because I'm changing how a paragraph sounds doesn't mean I've necessarily made it better. I just made it sound like how I would write it. And that's, that, that's a difference there. And the sooner you can recognize that, the sooner you can become a better co-author. You know, I, I also do this as a as a reviewer because I serve on the the editorial board of a couple of different journals. But even just as a collaborator working with co-authors, that am I making it better, or am I make it sound like I wrote that paragraph? And understanding that difference is uh, an important lesson. Speaking
0: of lessons, what kind of advice do you have for? Both junior NCOs at the at the at the more junior level, like sergeants and staff sergeants, and also for more senior NCOs, like sergeants major, master sergeants, sergeants major. What kind of advice do you have for these NCOs when it comes to the kind of things you talked about in your article?
1: Yeah, when it comes, yeah, that's oh, that's a great question. Um, and boy, m- my enlisted career ended at E5, so I I, <laughs> I don't know if I talked about to the senior NCOs. I don't have the background there. Um, but you know, I, I mentioned this earlier knowing your soldiers knowing them goes a long way towards understanding in the moment hey are they somehow altered or impaired in a way that might need medical attention that's an important thing that uh, the better you know them the better you're gonna have a chance of recognizing that um but also knowing them in terms of when i came back to that motivation stuff of knowing who to pull aside of hey Listen, private, you know, Specialist Snuffy, or you know, you're always a hard charger out in front. You know, weather conditions are kind of crappy today. You might want to, you know, you know, pull them aside and a little bit of words of wisdom of uh, appropriately pacing themselves because it's rough out. You know, it's it's hot and it's humid or whatever the case may be. Um, For the senior NCOs, the importance of planning across you know, especially a larger event like this, you know, we're we're coming back to, we're talking about EIB testing on the 12-mile foot march. Coordination and planning, it can be across multiple units because you may, a given brigade may be conducting this event, but they're going to be drawing in support assets from outside the brigade. Uh, you know, in an instance like this, there's going to be medical evacuation planning and, and communicating with the, the local Med Act, the local MTF, um, where the the senior NCO can be taking a role there in ensuring that those things happen, and, and delegating to the to the more uh, junior NCOs and and whatnot to make sure that coordination happens.
0: On a separate note, sir, uh, I was giving Tony a hard time because when he, we were talking about uh, his experiences, his uh, the fact that he was a, a heat casualty. One of the things that we heard, that I heard uh, back then. Is uh, about the silver bullet. Silver bullet, and I asked him if he uh, if he got the silver bullet, and he very uh, unashamedly said yes. So that I don't know if if that that the silver bullet is something that uh,
1: anyway, yeah. I just one of those things we talked yeah. about that that
0: that was a big deal back in the Marine Corps back in the day.
1: Yeah, you know. So I actually I, I do want to make a point about that since you did bring it up and we haven't mentioned it yet. When it comes to actually doing a medical assessment of a heat casualty, it is important to know their core temperature. And that's why we need medical personnel, because you'll get inaccurate readings from an oral thermometer or the ear or the armpit. Here at Fort Benning, it's actually local policy. The only authorized method to assess core temperature is a rectal, therm- rectal temperature. Only medical personnel are authorized to get a rectal temperature. All the others can be misleading by multiple degrees. They can be off, oftentimes too low, giving a false sense of security of, oh, actually, they're not that hot, when really they are very hot. <laughs> for better or for worse, uh, our medical personnel are used to getting those. And they'll do it in such a way to maintain some level of dignity, dignity and privacy, do it in the back of an FLA. or You know, it's not out – <laughs> there's not a crowd. Is what I'm saying here. You know, um, yeah. There's a a right way and a wrong way to go about doing that in a way that maintains the individual's privacy and some level of dignity. But that's a necessary way to assess a suspected heat casualty in their core temperature. Um, So we really do. You know, I'm glad to hear. You know, where he talked about, yeah, that's what that was done. You know, um, um, that there shouldn't be any stigma associated with that. It's a thermometer. We're measuring your temperature. So what?
0: Yeah, I'm glad I brought it up because it, I mean, it, it, there's so many things when, when you're at, at that level, at that point where where an individual is so is is a casualty. Uh, I think maybe uh, you know, pride and, and and things like that need to need to go out the window. You need to focus on your health and 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 being safe.
1: And, 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 and you know what? Oftentimes, if it's a you know a, a true heat stroke with alternate mental status, they may not even realize it or remember it. I spoke with a a young lady a couple of weeks ago who was a heat stroke, and it was actually a pretty funny conversation we were it was in the hospital the day after her heat stroke, and she chuckled about it. she's like, yeah i she it was during a um a timed five mile run, and she collapsed right around the finish line and she jokingly said, Yeah, the first thing I remember waking up is I was in the back of the ambulance naked and I had a rectal probe in my butt." <laughs> <laughs> You know, but you know that's medical personnel doing the right thing, getting them stripped down out of clothing, getting ice sheets on bare skin to get them cooled off, and getting a rectal thermometer in place so they can get their core temperature and track how hot they are and they're cooling off. Um, and doing it in a way to preserve the individual's um dignity and privacy. that's that's what our medical personnel, they're good at that stuff, and let them do their jobs. And let's not worry about those things. Um, you know, that, oh, my God, we're going to be, you know, I tell drill sergeants, strip them down to their underwear. You know, getting them cooled off is a life-saving intervention. We're not terribly concerned about sharp complaints when someone's unconscious and you're in, you're doing a life potentially life-saving intervention.
0: That that leads to one of the things that, the one thing that stuck in my mind more than anything was then on that first vignette where the tubs were too low and the soldiers couldn't get down to, wouldn't get down to, to, Dip their arms, and you know, because they don't want to have to stand up again, and and that kind of that—that that is the one point that really stuck to me. And I'm I'm hoping that that if if anything, if soldiers, NCOs get nothing else out of it, that they that that'll stick in their mind because that's such a significant that minor little detail uh, could have yeah. saved hey. so much, could have could have solved so many problems.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a really good point. You know, we know arm immersion cooling works for preventing heat casualties. But if we set it up in such a way that there's a, a a perceived barrier to the ease of use, and just simply sending it lower to the ground where the individual has to take a knee, and you know if you're nine miles into a rock and you've got 35 pounds on your back, you're like, ah, oh, crap! I got to kneel down and get back up. That just that, that that little extra bit of exertion doesn't feel like it's worth it, so you just skip it
0: dip a helmet in the ice water and
1: you know and 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 you know and instead they dip their helmet in there and then the water runs out which was the problem is enough people did that then there wasn't water in it for whoever came after them where how how had the, they have gone differently if those had been set up at a height that was easier just from standing to utilize it for cooling purposes how might have things been different that day we can't say for sure but it um, sure sounds like it would have been, you know, ease of use is something that needs to be considered when you're planning.
0: I think ease of use and also teaching them or, or, or giving them a class on the importance of why it is that they need, to what they need to do rather than dip those helmets and put the ice water on their on the, their heads, but also yeah. giving them the information so they know what they, they're supposed to do and what the significance is behind it.
1: Exactly. that. Oh, that's where the the education and training of the participants in an event comes into play that, Hey, this is what's going to be out there and it's available for you. This is how you should use it. And why? Because it's a tool that we've, we know works to reduce heat casualties, but only if it's used right. And it's not used right. If the people who need to use it aren't aware.
0: Well, on that note, thanks again for joining us. I hope that, um, this was a good experience for you? Yeah,
1: no, thank, thank you for having me. Uh, it was a pleasure chatting with you gentlemen.
0: And thank you to our audience. Remember to put your knowledge to the page, submit articles, and get published with the NCO Journal. Don't forget to check out our webpage and follow us on social media. We'll catch you next time on the NCO Journal Podcast.